Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Karen Deal is a comedian and actress whose show business career began auspiciously enough when she followed up her college thesis with the documentary short Woman Rebel that was shortlisted for the Academy Awards. As an actress, she co-starred in the 2019 NBC sitcom Sunnyside, and before that chalked up numerous guest-starring roles on shows such as Modern Family, The Mindy Project, How to Get Away with Murder, New Girl, The Newsroom, Weeds, and Grey's Anatomy. As a comedian, she co-hosts a weekly show Thursdays in Los Angeles called Peacock, and has performed on Gotham Comedy Live and Hulu's Coming to the Stage. She's also a regular on the podcast Love It or Leave It and Hysteria. She joined me to talk about her latest project, a one-person show called Joy Suck, that follows the aftermath when a stranger tried to suck the joy out of her life by smashing her face with a bottle. Deal is taking Joy Suck to the Edinburgh Fringe, but first she's talking to me about it, as well as why Hollywood has sucked the joy out of being a working writer or actor enough for both the WGA and SAG-AFTRA to go on strike. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! Karen Duell, thank you for sitting with me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> the last things first. The events that you talk about in Joy Suck just happened within the past year, correct? Correct, correct, correct. So when it happened, you weren't already you weren't thinking, well, you weren't thinking it was gonna that these events would happen in the first place. But then in the aftermath, you weren't immediately sitting there thinking to yourself, oh, you know what? This would be a great show for Fringe. Definitely not. Definitely not. I was excited to take something to Fringe. And I did the Soho Theater in January. This, And I think we can say this. It's it's in the, you know, the paragraph for Edinburgh, et cetera. In December, I was walking with a friend outside of a 7-Eleven and I got assaulted. I got hit in the face with a with a bottle in an unprovoked assault. Um, that kind of, you know, set off this chain of events that included some surgeries and trial and all of this kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I was not expecting to make the show about that. In January, end of January, I did the Soho Theater in London and had a show that I was planning to bring to Edinburgh called Joy Suck. And then the last five minutes of that show were kind of addressing this experience and how Joy Sucks will keep happening. And this is why we need the perspective on joy sucks, you know, things that suck your joy out. And how do you get back to like a kind of childhood level of joy, which is kind of what the show was about. But then as it started to evolve and develop, I, I just started to play around and, and it felt really exciting and really personal and really interesting and dynamic, hopefully to kind of share just a very personal emotional trajectory of what happened. And so that ending ended up becoming kind of the beginning and you saw a work in progress version of that, you know, kind of reworked our 
since then, which was <laughs> always the plan <laughs> for years, five years ago, it was the plan. Right. Well, speaking of time and five years, I mean, the, the classic formula is tragedy plus time equals comedy. Yeah. But for you to be processing this as you're processing this, so to speak, processing it on stage while you're also processing it just in your day-to-day life. Is that part of how you tend to work? Yeah, this is a great question. For me, like the stand-up was a lifesaver for processing it because even like when we were back from surgeries and like you couldn't drink alcohol and then like being able to like even go out to some shows with like the nose cast. I have a weekly show in Los Angeles called Peacock. That's every Thursday being able to just talk about it when it was very raw, you know, like in those first several weeks and it didn't all have to be super funny or like maybe there was one thing that was funny was really helpful because for me, it helped take an event that was, you know, objectively pretty awful and you get to reframe and recontextualize it and find a way to help your brain tell a story in a way that, makes sense to you and feels kind of empowering because you're finding what's funny. You're finding the jokes. You're taking something that was a very isolating experience that was quite violent and turning it into a shared piece of community where we can all laugh together. And to Mm -hmm. me, that's that just like, yeah, I think it's been like one of the most cathartic and helpful ways to, to deal with it. Honestly. What, what strikes me about your career is that your first experience with show business or filmmaking or being in the business is okay. So you go to Harvard, you have a friend from Nepal. It it strikes this interest in you to learn more. You write your senior thesis about what's going on in Nepal. Look at you knowing shit. My God. And then you decide, Oh, you know what? I should make a documentary film based on my thesis. And then that documentary short ends up getting shortlisted for the Academy Awards. Yeah. Gets an Emmy from the News and Documentary Emmys. But you weren't, what was your actual thought process when you decided after graduating from Harvard, you're going to, you're going to just keep going with your thesis? That's so great. I love the way you're like, so what the fuck happened to you is your question. (laughs) You're like, what the fuck? And like, so first of all, let me just say all of that stuff did happen. It got nominated for an Emmy, didn't win, but that also wasn't enough at the mm-hmm. time to get me an agent representation in the entertainment business, you know, because it was a different time, honestly. And it was like, uh, you know, I always say the Academy, like there was a movie called rabbit all of Berlin that kind of makes me laugh. I mean, and God bless seven, out of, like six out of seven of these films that were shortlisted for the Oscars were amazing fantastic chef's kiss all great just flavor of the week one was about rabbits mm-hmm. um from the point like the fall of the berlin wall from the point of view of the rabbits inside of the berlin wall that was in black and white and also german voiceover of the rabbits for 40 minutes with english subtitles and that movie got shortlisted over my i got nominated for an oscar over my movie and i was like mm-hmm. my joke to that is always like i was like yeah you know because the academy the demographic they're like berlin wall important women those are the things you put your cigarettes out on you know like just dark it's dark <laughs> maybe they just still have visceral memories of watership down 
<laughs> I saw that as a child in the movie theater and it scarred me. Yeah. And you were like, and I blame myself because it's like the next time that I make a movie about women rebel soldiers, I think we know what I need to do. Add rabbits, obviously more rabbits. Honestly, more rabbits. this, this hour probably needs some rabbits, you know, mm. but when you made that short though, you weren't thinking this is going to be my entree into Hollywood or were you? No, I think, I think I was like, I think I knew I wanted to be in an artistic career. And I okay. think I knew the themes that were interesting to me. I think I wanted to make a fiction feature film. And then I like talked to somebody at some like, I don't know, like a Harvard business conference. And he was like, have you thought about a documentary? It was like, it's much easier to fund or whatever. And I was like, yeah, documentary, you know, cause I was like, I was like 14 years old. And I didn't realize how much work, time, effort, and energy it would take. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. And then, you know, and then we, I did, but it just took much longer. I thought it would be a summer and it was like, you know, whatever, a year and a half. And so, and got very lucky in a lot of ways and had a lot of help from like so many generous people there. But the crazy thing about that, when I look back on it, is that the, and I think I said this in like the version of the show that you watched, it's like the tagline of that show. And the thing I was always interested in about those women rebel soldiers was like, up until that point, like a lot of the images that I saw, of like South Asian women specifically were like, oh, like my husband's, my husband's like weak. It was like, you know, like weak, vulnerable victims, like somebody threw acid on my face. Like my husband's going to burn me at the stake because of like this. And, and not to say like all of that stuff is very serious and it happens, but like the women in my life were like these like badass, like, bitches who are like, yeah, they're like tiny ladies, but they're like, they're tough as nails. They're immigrants. They, they're really resilient and weathered. I didn't see that image of South Asian women in Western media. And so when I learned that 40% of the rebel army in Nepal were women over the course of a 10 year revolution, and I didn't know it, my job was on the floor. I was like, because it's such an arresting image. It's like, it's like these women holding guns. Do you know what I mean? It's like, there's yeah. this element of agency. And I, I think I said this in the show, it's like the tagline was kind of like agents of change, not victims of circumstance was the idea. And so there's a great irony. Like I was talking to a buddy of mine about how sometimes themes seem to come across, like sometimes themes seem to traverse your own life. You know what I mean? And so like this idea of like being an agent of change and not a, and not a victim of circumstance, that's exactly kind of, you know, in this, in this context of literally being assaulted, where like the state of California is sending you mail where you are called a victim. Do you know what I mean? Finding right. a way to try to be an agent of change in that. Only this time it's like very personal to me specifically. And so like an exploration of, I, I just think like a lifelong theme of how do you feel a sense of agency in your, cause everyone wants to feel that. I think the vast majority of people. And then there's a couple of people who are amazing victims. Most of them are say it with me, billionaires. That's right. <laughs> I was going to say conservative uh, college students <laughs> who are <laughs> told that their opinions don't matter. I was like, poor, oh God, poor president of Disney. He's like, it's just unrealistic sitting in that. Sitting in that uh, Sun Valley. Was there anything in your own childhood? Because I know you were you were born in in England, but then your family decides to leave England for Florida. As I think it's as we know, this is the path, right? Yeah, you this go is the path. This is the way. Yeah, uh, this is the maybe, way. Maybe predicting the events of 
the ABC sitcom Fresh Off the Boat. Uh, they're like, oh yeah, Florida in the '90s. That's what you do. Florida in the '90s, baby. I mean, yeah. Fresh Off the Boat did try to have a spinoff. I don't know if you were ever up for this with Veer Das as a motel owner. Metal I have heard of this. I have heard of this. And how was that? Uh, I guess it didn't take. Okay, great. There's a million. But it was why. an episode or two. Got it. Did you uh, watch I, those episodes? I didn't I, see them. I did because I've I've had Veer on the podcast, so I was intrigued to see what would happen. And uh, I guess, I guess the subplot was just that the Indian American experience is owning a motel. Yeah. And I think in that Florida. that's in Florida, in Florida, which is hilarious. I mean, I think there are a lot of motel owners like mm-hmm. in, but that wasn't my family. And, and there's, you know, just like there's a lot of franchise business, right? So it's like, I think a lot of times, I think a lot of times if you're an immigrant and you come in, and you know somebody that's doing one thing, they like know how to say, oh, like you do it like this. Like this is how you do this thing. And so right. that's why you get a lot of immigrants who come in and like a bunch of people own motels. Like I think it's like the Patels. I'm not a Patel, I'm a deal. Thank you. Um, but a lot of Patels own motels because it's like, you know, you come in and like talk to the people you know, and they know all of the hoops, the logistics, how to get through it. So like there's kind right. of a a fast track to understanding how you would franchise a business, how you would do this thing. Yeah. Like the, the donut stores in Southern California. Exactly. Like the donut stores in Southern California is a perfect example. I, I don't right. remember the ethnicity of the guy, but yeah, people come and then they're like, how do I do a thing? And everything has a million steps. So yeah. in my neighborhood, I think all of the Dunkin' Donuts in my neighborhood, all the employees are Bengali. Love that. I love so that. I think, love yeah, a Bengali I think donut like shop. you said, it just like, it starts with, with one cluster of people and then they just, well, we'll bring you the rest of you in. This is how you get in. Yeah. This is how you get in. This is what you do. This is, yeah. this is like, this is, they're like showing you the ropes, you know? What, what were your parents doing? My dad was a computer engineer and my okay. mom was a teacher who worked um, in early childhood education. And now she has uh, preschools. So she has two, she has two preschools that she runs with a, a business partner. So very clever so, lady. So what did they think when you have that Harvard degree, mm-hmm. then you have this award nominated short film mm-hmm. and then you say to them, yeah, I think I'm going to be in a comedian and an actress now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's great. I will say I was very lucky in terms of like, cause I did like theater in high school. I always knew I wanted to be in the arts. I don't think I figured out and storytelling. And then it was like, did like kind of acting and was funny in high school and then did some of the acting and directing in college and just didn't really know what direction it was going to go. Okay. And so the the documentary was, was like the right thing out of school, if that makes sense. It was like the writing and then it went to the documentary as opposed to like, as opposed to like, I don't know what Michael Moore's path was, but it feels to me like he was probably like, I want to make documentary films from like the beginning. Right. You know, I feel like I kind of, ended up making one and then people were like oh this is like what you do and i was like it is and they're like "Mm -hmm." and i was like oh weird you know (laughs) which is hilarious and then after yeah after that i i remember you know it was like that was really hustled like like a pure hustle really no resources like going to like the south central library and like looking up grants on their computer their public computer and then cold calling people my executive producer on that movie was a cold call you know like uh who was incredible you know um still a friend today and for all of these reasons i think 
it was quite taxing. And I think when it was over, instead of feeling like, yeah, let's do this again, I was like, man, it'd be fun to do something fun. And CBS had a like, and there was never like a plan, like a deliberate plan, but CBS had a sketch uh, comedy diversity showcase that they were doing. And I was like, comedy, that sounds fun. And then uh, fun. And then I like met a bunch of people doing that who I really respect and, and felt really lucky to meet at that time. And I remember thinking, oh, I could see myself like making a career here. Like it, it just, I liked that the people were, I mean, it's like, you know, you're in comedy. It's like people are hustlers. They're, they're writing, they're performing, they're, you know, some of them are now like, you know, running shows. Some of them are doing stand up. Like there's a real range of what you can do as a comedian and all of it involves agency. And that is recognized by the entertainment business in a way that, you know, if an actress is like, I'm a writer, they're like, okay, sweetheart, sure you are. You know, I feel, I, I mean, maybe that's me being, I'm projecting too much, but. Well, uh, I mean, we are talking at a time when both the actors and the writers are on strike because as, as much as you might want to be in your villain area, you're dealing with actual villains in their villain era. A hundred percent. Yeah, they are. <laughs> it's, it's somebody put it this way. It's like, it's actually kind of insane that the the person selling stuff is telling the person making stuff that they don't deserve a cut of the thing they made. Like, that's crazy. You didn't make anything. I, and that is not to minimize the importance of distribution or the business part. But like, I think there is something when like a business model gets really out of whack and, and what greed looks like. And we're seeing it, you know, we're seeing it all over America. Yeah. It brings me back to Sunnyside. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was interested in, in it, not just because I live in Astoria, Queens, which is, you do? which is oh, one neighborhood, over, one neighborhood over. I've spent many times in Sunnyside, but also because it was, it was full of stand-up comedians. So I was mm -hmm. intrigued to see you and Joel Kim Booster and Moses Storm. And, I feel like even at the time, I felt like that was an early warning sign of how the business was failing. Because NBC, well, I mean, you can tell me what happened from your perspective. But I rem remember even writing at the time when the network canceled the show. They had an opportunity to put it on Hulu for no additional cost. And I mean, Peacock, yeah. Or Peacock, yeah. And they didn't. And now it seems, oh, they did that because they didn't want to pay you. That's funny. I, you know, I don't even know if the residuals on that were high enough to warrant that being the decision. But what strikes me about it is I think about those show creators and like the pedigree of those creators. And it's, you know, it's, it's the guys who did the good place and parks and recreation and a lot of the seminal hits of like a, a time. And so, you know, the irony to me is like, I remember like I got Sunnyside at the same, t like a cup, I got that job at this. And then a couple months later, the audition for never have I ever came out on um, the show on Netflix. And mm -hmm. I, so I couldn't go out for it, but I look back on it even now. And I think if I had, if I had had the decision of which one I wanted at the time, I absolutely would have gone with Sunnyside. You know, I like, there's no, I just know, there's no doubt in my mind I would have done that. What I see in the, the change in the business model is, you know, you watch season one of The Office, season two, season three, like the, like the show gets progressively better because I think 
that those show creators really are taking, I mean, a bunch of like really tremendously talented comedic talent, but then they're finding it. They're finding how to write to each character. They're finding the voice and they incorporate your voice. You know, they try to get interesting people and then it just takes a second for it all to gel. And it does, but you need to give it a minute. Do you know what I mean? For those like kind of ensemble comedies and What's what really struck me about it is I was like, wow, like somebody like Mike Schur and that entire camp has built up. You would think that they've built up a lot of goodwill with that network, just given how much money they paid them. And it's wild to me that they didn't give give them the grace of like a couple of seasons to get it right. If that makes sense, like because I do think I do think the show would have grown and the show you saw in season one would have evolved into a show in season three that just, you know, it's an iterative process, especially comedy. You came to a work in progress of my show because comedy is an iterative process. It gets better. The more you do it and the more a group of people is working together, the more familiar you become. Uh, That part, that, that grace seems to like, you need to kind of, now it feels like everything drops at the same time. You need to come out guns blazing. There's no, which really is um, is not helpful for the ensemble comedy, you know, uh, in my opinion. Like mm-hmm. Schitt's Creek, I mean, Schitt's Creek, because the budget was so small, they had time to iterate and find it, right? Um, which is very different than like a White Lotus, like, you know, a pure creator, single creator who's like writing the whole thing has like a very specific vision. And both are valid, but I think that, you know, some of the most beloved television shows that, that people watch on repeat the, this has been the process to make them is like this iterative process. And by taking that away, how do you expect to make those kinds of shows? I don't know. I mean, the, the other, I, I mean, don't know the way your answer is uh, great answer. Great answer. <laughs> you know, NBC gave AP bio a chance after trying to cancel it. They gave it another shot on Peacock. Uh, you know, they had that CISO platform for a hot minute. I forget if that overlapped at all with Sunnyside, but. I think that was an RIP before Sunnyside came along. I think it was CISO first, like, cause Cameron Esposito and River Butcher had a show on that, I think. Right. And then, yeah. And then Peacock, and then Peacock came along. And the irony is my weekly show. Your is weekly named live. Peacock. Yeah, your live comedy in, show in. My live right. comedy show weekly is called Peacock. And we predate the network. So we'll see who lasts longer. (laughs) What about your, so your career before then, interestingly, you had a pilot with Moses the season before Sunnyside, right? So crazy, right? I'm curious to know your career before that, though. You You were having one of those careers where you could book a guest star and role once or twice, at least once or twice a year with like a major network show. Yeah. As a working actor, was that something that, that could sustain you then? Or did you, or did you find over the course of, of the past decade or so that, that that's why, that's another reason why you have to be on strike. It's gone way down. Like it used to be that like, yeah, it used to be that if you had booked a couple of guest stars a year, you'd be okay. Right. It went from like, I don't know, maybe 10, like for network, like Mm -hmm. it went from something like, I don't know, 10 grand plus residuals, like 
for an hour to, I don't know what the hours are now, but like, I know I have friends who are working on Netflix shows recurring or like Apple shows. And I mean, recurring, they have more than, and they'd be working three episodes for $1,200 a day. And then there's no residuals. So those jobs are incredibly difficult to book, you know, like just, just in terms of the pure volume of people going out, any role you see on television, there were 60 plus people trying to get that role. Right. And so it's like to get that job is, is a challenge. It's hard. And then when you get it, you're not going to get all of them. They're not all going to go your way. There's, it's like baseball. There's a very high rate of failure, but when you hit one out of the park, you hit one out of the park. So you need those jobs to pay you well, because that's how you sustain the industry. I mean, I was thinking about if I, if I got paid for all the auditions I've done and how close they came, it's like my financial situation, I would be rich. I would be, I would be getting the nicer housing in Edinburgh. You know, it would, it would make, (laughs) it would legit, that's what we were talking about before we got on the pot, but it would, it's a real, it's a real difference. It would be a real difference. And to be clear, if you were paying for auditions, maybe less people would be auditioning. So like, I'm sure there would be some like contraction in the economics. I get that, but but the biz- for the business model to have changed as rapidly as it did in terms of the sustainability of anything but like the top 1% of like creators to be able to make stuff and make a living doing it for people on the bear to like not have enough money to live for the year while it's a massive hit. That's insane. What are we doing? And then for like the very, very top people, a hundred million dollar deals didn't exist like six years ago or whatever it was 10 years ago. Like, and then you're paying you know, these like insane premiums for like the top 1% of the 1%. This is uh, this is not the way to run a business or a country, in my opinion, but I guess. Great. It's great if you're Ryan Murphy or Shonda Rhimes, but. Yeah. And like, but then I even, I'm even curious because like, you know, Mike sure is in that position, but I don't think he thinks, you know, I think this is all about your orientation into what you think labor looks like, what you think value is. And, and do you truly believe, like I was talking to a dude who um, had sold a company to Google and was talking about like, like, so, you know, and was one of those like wunderkind kind of guys. And he goes, mm-hmm. do you really inherently believe that one person's labor is worth $78,000 a day? Like, and somebody else's labor is worth like $250 a day. Does that sound right to you? Like, does that sound right? That doesn't sound right. You know, like I'm talking like, kin- like pre- I always think about it like preschool shit. If like mm-hmm. my mother's children in like the preschool would be like, that's fucked up. Do you know what I mean? Like, then why are we doing that as grownups behind the guise of lawyers and like unions and pretending to be like, but this is just the way because Wall Street, well, get the fuck out of my life. You're just being a dick fuck. Like you're just being a dick fuck. Is that a direct quote? Can you put that in the... <laughs> Dick fuck an episode with Karen Deal, like Jesus. <laughs> From joy suck to dick fuck. Yeah, exactly. Real. Um, she's an innovator, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you you mentioned your your weekly live show in LA. You also, you know, when you're not showing up one time in my lifetime on my podcast, you're showing up <laughs> multiple times on others, whether it's Love It or Leave It or Hysteria. How important is it these days? for a working comedian to have your fingers in all these different places? That's a great question. Um, I don't know. 
uh, is the answer. I, I don't know. I, I'm just out here on these streets, you know, doing what I do. I, I feel like a, I don't know how you feel about comedians, but I always feel like they're like uh, the guy on the corner with like a trench coat. Do you know what I mean? And it's like an open trench coat. And I'm like, do you want this cup? And they're like, no, I don't want a cup. I need some keys. And I was like, I got some keys right here, you know? And it's like, they just constantly like have all these like wares. That's what I feel like a comedian really is. And I love that about it. You know, I feel like it's the same thing as like the guy in the corner, just selling a bunch of, you don't want a bag. I got a shirt. You don't want a shirt. I got a hat. You know, would you want these socks? And they're like, get away from me. To me, that's a, that's, that's a comedian. <laughs> so it is important to have lots of pockets. Lots of you pockets. Need, you need places to put all these things. Otherwise, you need places. Otherwise, how are you going to pull them out and pull off that hat trick? Yeah. The other yeah. thing is, I think it's really like what I do love about comedy is I do think even though the actual act of standup is like quite solitary, there is like, there is a, like a massive community, you know? So like I'm hopping onto your podcast. Do you know what I mean? Like love it or leave it has terrific producers. And then I get to like go joke around and kick it with like friends and some hilarious people. You know what I mean? And it's, mm-hmm. it's fun. It's, a, it's fun. I have fun, you know, or folks come out to my shows and they, Oh, this, like, maybe you could do this or try this here. And you hear thoughts from people. So I think it's also like, you know, trying to remember to be collaborative and, and participate in a, in a community, like there's a community aspect to that too. So that it's like, cause nobody's like, you know, you, you don't want to live in a vacuum. That's no fun. Right. Well, and, and you've, you've proven your ability to adapt. I mean, a year ago you were probably thinking I might take a show to Edinburgh, but, but it was a completely different show. And different. Then, it would have been a different, it was a different show. Right. Ab- as, absolutely. as you said, it was a completely different show. You get hit by a stranger outside of 7-Eleven with a glass bottle of the face and suddenly five minutes at the end of your show turns into the an entirely different show. And now you have this new show that you've been able to cathartically work through and you're able to, to showcase it to the world at a time when you couldn't be doing anything else otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> My friend, my friend will say, and this is a very LA thing. I don't think a New York person would ever say this, but it's just the universe is always working for you, Kieran. It's always working for you. It's never working against you. And I say, shut up, you know, to that. And, uh, but the way that you phrase that so eloquently, it makes her sound correct. Well, I may be correct, but I may also have to shut up. So. Kieran Diol, thank you. Thank you so much. I, uh, I enjoyed seeing your show in progress in Brooklyn, and I look forward to seeing how much it has progressed when we reconnect in Scotland. I'm so excited, and I'm excited to see you now and excited to see you there. So, um, yeah. Thanks. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>